Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I want to thank my latest Patreon subscriber, Johan, for his support and all my other Patreon subscribers for their continued support. This podcast would struggle to continue without them, and my Patreon page is quickly becoming a great place to hang out and talk about the world of conducting. There'll be more about my Patreon page later on in this episode. Today, I conduct a conversation with a Colombian conductor, who is at the start of her career, but is already making quite a name for herself. She is conducting fellow at the Philadelphia Orchestra and the Seattle Symphony Orchestra, as well as being the Schulte Conducting Apprentice at the Chicago Symphony under the guidance of Ricardo Muti. It's a great pleasure to welcome Lina Gonzalez-Granados. Lena, it's lovely to meet you and to see you. How are you? I am very good. A little bit tired, but all is fine. Just like getting to, uh, used to time zones again, which is always a hassle coming from uh, east to west. Yes. Uh, well, we'll come back to your um, your recent touring, but also guest conducting and flying all here, there and everywhere around the world later on. Right now, I want to go back to the beginning. I know you were born in Cali, Colombia. And I want to know how music first came into your life. Mum and dad, were they musical or were you, did you grow up in a, you know, in a place where music was everything? How did it first impact your life? Well, my parents are very talented beings, but music is not particularly one of their talents. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> at all. My, both of them study medicine. My dad is a doctor. My mom dedicated her life to pursuing other talents but she studied medicine as well and yes uh, Colombia in general is an extraordinary musical country mm. uh, not necessarily classical music is the first thing that you it comes up to mind when you think about Colombia but Colombia has first of all the territory is so vast mm. that the music making it like reflects that yeah. There's a lot of styles, a lot of uh, fusions, um, and that's how I came to, to music in general. It came uh, out of love when I was little. In the school, there was like a big choir, and also when I was very, very little, around five, six years old, uh, there was this choir called the Tuna, which is an Spanish um a Spanish group that does serenades in general. It's like university or college kids that does serenades for their loved ones. Yeah. And we had that in school. So I was the little kid, the only kid in that tuna who was actually in tune. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the five-year-old who was in tune playing castanets and dancing yeah. uh, to the opposite side of the beat all the time. The videos are very embarrassing. <laughs> so that's how I it, it came, you know, it came as um, um first like as a not not a hobby but um a, a way to have fun. Yeah. And yeah. that that has stayed for uh, with me and then uh, I my my grandfather who was also a doctor I remember he used to have a lot of classical LPs. And I remember he had the, the first CD he ever had. I mean, this is a long time ago. Was what it was Symphony Number no. Forty and Beethoven Five. Yes, like one very mixed mixture. And I was maybe six years old, and I remember 
uh, him putting that on, like putting headphones on me, I, I can't forget that uh, feeling ever um, in his, in his um, practice. Yeah. He was, uh, he was, you know, attending people and there was, and he had, he was like a painter slash doctor. And I mean, he happened to have like a bust of Beethoven. Gigantic. <laughs> I mean, it's, be, it, it was very tacky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I remember hearing that and seeing that and feeling this sense of, you know, seeing that bust and feeling those feelings that when you're five years old, you can't quite grasp what they are. Are you scared? Are you afraid? Are you excited? You know, all of these that they're just feelings that you feel with this music, you know, overwhelmingly beautiful music and deep experience. And that is that that was how I started loving classical music. That I was the the only one in my in my early years, but yeah. in my family who actually I was like a uh, a renaissance woman in the wrong country or a renaissance infant in the yeah. wrong country you know reading yeah. books and listening to classical music at the age of six or seven uh, when people were playing barbies uh, <laughs> watching, watching novelas yeah and so w when did you first start learning an instrument other than singing obviously singing is very important for us all but when did you first learn an instrument what was that instrument or have you just stayed a singer and a and a castanet player ever since <laughs> definitely not and <laughs> <laughs> um, no i started um i started playing piano yeah um, professional well i, I want to say professionally uh, more more than than a hobby maybe when i was 10 or 11 mm. which we is fairly late uh, but I mean, as I told you, my parents have had no clue what to do with me, and uh, the the piano was a way for me to to just like get me get me safe, you know, in a way, in a country that I don't know the environment was so unsafe. So they figured out that a uh, piano was indoors, and yeah. they still wanted to, you know, they didn't want me to go out too much. And uh, this is when I was 10 or 11, uh, when things got very, very rough in, in my city. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so it started as a hobby. I had a little uh, keyboard that I don't know if I have it here. <laughs> I, I think my mom gave it to me. It's hilarious. And with that, I would put on my headphones again and I would get all the tones of the symphonies, you know? Yes. I mean, my fingers were fatter than the, those, you know, those Casio that were. Yes, like, I rem yeah, I remember those. Yeah, we had one as well. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Who, who didn't, you know, with those like little Orient, uh, Oriental tunes and all of these very weird uh, demos. But I remember getting the tunes out all the time. And my mom was like, oh, okay, maybe she has some talent. Then we get, get it a bigger keyboard, a bigger keyboard, a bigger keyboard. And that's how it started. And then um when i was maybe 14 i did started more formally yes uh, rather late yeah everybody reminded me how late i was 
I didn't start playing the violin until I was nine. Uh, and I don't think I started even attempting to play the piano until I was well into my teens and I still can't play it now. But, you know, I, I, some people, you know, the last person I interviewed started the piano at three and the cello at six. So, I mean, we all start at different times, you know, that's- Yeah, yeah. We, we are geriatric starters in the music. <laughs> we are. That when you're like above 10, so, yeah. yeah. Well, well, I read that you made your conducting debut at home in Cali, Colombia, in 2008, conducting the youth orchestra of the Bellas Artes. Now, how did you get to that point? Why or when did conducting enter your into your head as something that you wanted to investigate? And before that debut, had you had any lessons or was you, you just sort of self-taught? Um, it was a combination of a lot of things. Um, the first one, uh, when I decided to commit to to music uh, full time as you know as, as a student um, i realized early on about you know my limitations with the piano even mm. though that's what i wanted to do you know and it's extraordinarily anxious inducing and frustrating for someone who has so much music inside and um, not being able to, to play it you yes. know it, 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 I mean, I, it could have, I, I could have, but I always had like these very big dreams for myself, like since the beginning, out of naivete, maybe I, out of not. So that was like the first like encounter, like psychological encounter is like, okay, maybe piano is not going to be the thing that I'm going to do. Mm. And the biggest, the biggest one, when I realized that that, that wasn't going to be like my path was like the first red flag was to be so miserable studying it. Yes, you know? yes. <laughs> because I felt very lonely. Mm. It, was, it was a very lonely uh, experience to make music, you know, in a cubicle for eight hours or mm. where I was for eight hours. Some people have that in them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I admire that deeply. But as much as I love music, I, I hated being alone. Because it, it has been in my upbringing, yeah. as I told you, you know, like all my life, it's been like more of like, I'm an only child and like always been a lonely wolf. And then first, like I entered this beautiful universe of music and then I find people doing music together in orchestras, in choirs, in chamber music, uh, in opera. Mm. And I see this and I'm like, wow, I really need to be in, in into that yes. work of making music with people because I am a very um, a social person. Yeah. I want to have a conversation all the time. Um, you know, I I'm shy. I talk a lot. <laughs> you can see, yeah. Uh, as you can see, and that's that's when conducting entered my life. I remember being in a. See, I, I don't remember if it was Carmina Burana. I always find that there was like a Beethoven nine that marked my life that mm. I was singing, you know, in the middle of it. And in, I was like in the middle of the big gigantic choir. And here I was doing this thing. And I felt part of something very important, you know, something with purpose yes. that I never felt with the piano. <laughs> Even though I love the repertoire, I felt it was very, uh, very self-indulgent for me. The, yes. my process of, of playing the piano uh, it wasn't like a share experience so that's when I see I saw I was like 
definitely conducting is the is the path for me and in colombia you get to declare like a major and a minor something like that and then i was like i went to the dean and i said well i'm not gonna be a pianist <laughs> so you have to declare a major for me in conducting uh, in undergrad and they were like well this is impossible we've never done it and i'm like well, you need to declare something because I'm not going to graduate. Yeah, <laughs> this, yeah, yeah. Is, this is how it is. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to graduate and I really want to graduate. And it's the law that I graduate after paying for so long. <laughs> yes. You know? And I think they saw my conviction on it and they made it happen. You know, mm-hmm. they created orchestration flat classes for me. They created... Um, all of it, you know, uh, ear training, like uh, a more advanced ear training, you know, and it was a whole experiment. I was a guinea pig. This is 2008 or something like that. And even with that, they were like, yes, 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 we're gonna, you know, we're going to graduate her, whatever she does. After that, it's like, it's not our business. We we couldn't. (laughs) But that that mindset, they wouldn't let me conduct too much. You know, it was like a little couple of things that I would conduct with two pianos, but I was like, okay, how am I going to learn how to conduct orchestras if I'm never there, you know? And I wasn't living in Cali, I was living in Bogota. Mm. And uh, I went to, I started looking for places and I would, you know, there was this guy who went with, um like to a conducting workshop with me and he has happened to be the the music director of that conservatory and I yeah. told him like hey give me an opportunity I just want to conduct Egmont give me a, like, give me one I, I I just need one piece and he was like yeah why not go conduct yeah. and that's how it started you know not in school but like I started looking opportunities elsewhere and uh, that went on to be like my my way of living looking looking everywhere where i didn't get it you know If we if we look ahead, I mean, to say you're qualified as a conductor is an understatement. Um, I'm just going to read off a list of what your qualifications are um, and maybe zone in on a couple of these names. You've got a master's degree with um, with a graduate diploma in choral, um, master's degree with Charles Peltz, a graduate diploma choral conducting at the New England Conservatory with Erica Washburn and Doctor of Musical Arts in conducting from Boston University. I mean, you know, to say you're qualified, you're definitely qualified. How, what did you learn from Charles Peltz and Erica Washburn that you maybe use today? I mean, I would imagine they were one of a couple of your, your earliest teachers, because uh, we're going to go on, there's plenty of other names coming up soon, you know, mentors and uh, even up to the present day. But, you know, just those early steps, what, what advice, uh, what technical things did they give you? Well, with, with Maestro Peltz, he really gave me my first technical steps and yeah. you know he made me how do i say it he's he's also uh, he's very good at contemporary music mm. and that's where i i became very clear technically i mean yeah. sometimes i'm not but you know like most of the time like clear 
clear conducting is where I like win hearts, you know. And I, I agree so, completely. But there are times where, where we should be unclear and it helps the situation. Yes, exactly. And sometimes you don't know how, what to do because you're no. just learning, you know, the, the thing. But he uh, he's a great contemporary guy, uh, an amazing opera conductor and he's a percussionist and his major in the university was um, wind ensemble conducting. Yeah. So like for, for me getting a, like into that repertoire before going into orchestra again, yes. because I did orchestra in Colombia, but then like just focusing on one repertoire that was so specific, which, which, which is wind ensemble and learning that whole universe of tuning the way that harmonics like you know blend into the, the instruments yes. it's, it was a whole thing that i needed that mm. i never had uh, he is an extraordinarily good rehearsal and very um, be very specific and he is one of the greatest human beings i've ever met so always very decent always very good about uh, the way that he treated me and the way that he taught me, uh, he was always trying to build myself up. Mm. You know, never, you know, even with the the criticism who was uh, who, who which was very uh, direct. He always wanted me to see how that I can frame it to always come be become better. Yes, and in a positive way. Yeah. Yeah, and it wasn't like. A toxic positivity or oh yes you're good no, it wasn't a pat in the back it was yeah. always you can do this this is how you do it for example people would say like um your rhythm is not like up to par sometimes when i go to uh, when i used to go to auditions at the beginning but he knew how i mean i dance i do all of these things and he knew colombia mm. so latin america has a different way to to feel the the rhythm so I remember him is like, he's like, no, you don't have problems with rhythm. What you have is a different way to feel rhythm. And if you want to feel it the American way or the European way, which is so different mm -hmm. from you, you need to treat it like you are a, an alcoholic with a disease. So you have like, it sounds terrible, but it's not. It was like every day you study your starter you do these exercises, you play with your metronome, you develop like, you know, muscle memory with the metronome and you just like get this monster out of your way, yeah. your way. And yeah. then you can be whatever else you want to be, mm. you know, like at the moment of your formation, you just have to embrace, you know, that homogeneous way of thinking in order to go to the next step, which is to be completely you. Yes, and yeah. he was always that. He was always uh, looking, uh, looking forward to make me be me in a, a, a in that early stage when you are just like figuring out how to just work, you know. Yes. And and with that in mind, uh, also something that he never had was professional jealousy. That's why I started with Erica because yeah. he saw uh, that I. I was very good with singers. You know, I had like, I had this uh, early on, uh, I don't know, good, good, good opera instincts or good choral instincts. So he said, 
uh, in the middle of my master's with him. He's like, you need to go study with her and she is going to give you also more opportunities to learn other in the other instrument, you know, like mm. the choral instrument. Yes. How do you rehearse it and everything? And with her, it was a completely different way. She's like, she's the a strong woman. A, you know she has tattoos she's she's just the most badass woman i've ever met you know <laughs> and she always was like okay lina you have to get out of your shell i know you are like trying to make everyone happy charles happy you know because yes. you need to you know but you just need to be you you need to own it you know stop stop hiding behind the things that people say that you can't do just do yourself you know do whatever you want and we always had these conversations. I don't want to say contentions, but they were always very um, intellectually, uh, you know, butting heads. Yes. Because she wanted that. Yeah. She wanted, you know, she was like, oh, poor baby. You know, sometimes it was like, yeah, Lina, of course. Uh, but she just like, she just like get, got me this like hunger, mm. you know, for for this and uh, to this day, you know, Erica and I speak, I mean, almost weekly. So for example, uh, I don't know, I did this competition in Paris and I was struggling finding like, uh, uh, like a, a meaning to a formata, even if, you know, like intellectually and I just like call Charles and I'm like, and I'm like Charles, how do I do this formata? Yeah. You know, even like when I'm already out, you know, almost 10 years. Yes. They it, are always for me, with me. They're there for me all the time. It sounds like you were lucky in meeting two teachers at the beginning who both of them, in different ways, in their own way, were saying to you, you've got to be you. You've got to, you know, be yourself. And by being yourself, you will work your way through it. You know, I think every conductor who makes a career of conducting works out at some point that they have to be themselves there will be enough people out there on the planet who will understand them like them want to work with them there will be others who don't you know we all meet those but yeah, but, but yeah but the, the point is is that you know, right from the beginning you sounds like you had two people who really started you off on the right track i mean i was going to say you know adding on sorry lean go on sorry no um I want to say that because I started so early in Colombia in my mm. the, the the very first encounter with a pedagogy in conducting was a, I don't want to say very traumatizing but yes well, <laughs> you know because yeah. it was always met with so much resistance or so yes. much it wasn't even doubt there was no doubt that I was going to fail all, all right. the time you know so that was like the mindset that I that I was ingrained for so long. And uh, when I graduated, I was like, I need, to, I, I think that, that I own it to, to my family mm. and myself, you know, my upbringing, as I told you with my parents who always were so supportive um, to see like, oh, I need to leave. And when I left, um, when I left that, that environment, uh, I was very picky I'm very specific about finding mentors that gave me opportunities like that. Yeah, so yeah. for me, it was like when I started auditioning in the States, I always I only auditioned in the States. I was only interested in, I don't know why, but that's how I felt. Um, 
I started meeting teachers and meeting people and you know for me it took it took a while for me to get the right teacher you mm. know to uh, like some of them I, I just didn't get accepted to the master's degrees in some of orchestral conducting programs so, but some of them I just when I saw them I, I really ran away <laughs> you know, it, was, it was it was uh, I mean I understood that it was not only me audition it, auditioning for them but I should have like I needed to bet on my own future because yes. I needed to to have someone who believed in me absolutely um, yeah that was that, that was one of the best decisions that I ever made even if it took me a while to mm. just start on the right foot Going ahead, and often other people have have had this situation because you know you go, you go to master classes, you go to um, courses, you go to competitions, and you get mentorship. You know you've been mentored by some pretty incredible names. I'm just going to list Marin Olsop, Bernard Heitink, Bramwell Tovey, Yannick Nezisagan, um, and currently you have after winning the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, the George Schulte International Conducting Competition. My God, that's a tongue twister. Uh, you now have an association with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and being mentored by Ricardo Muti. How do you process? I mean, you know, five great names there: Alsop, Heinting, Toby, Nezisagan, and Ricardo Muti. How do you process the advice that you're given from them? And add it to what you learned, you know, at the, at the foundation you know, of your studies with, with Charles Peltz and Erica. Um, you know, how do you, how do you add the extra layers to the cake? You know, and decide which which bits are good and which bits maybe don't suit you. With a little bit of care, yes. you know, yeah, yeah. Is, with a lot of patience and care, and just observing where their motivations are. Mm. They give me advice. Uh, with all the names that you gave me, I mean, all of them have been extremely selfless. Yes. Uh, and there is, n there is no doubt that they're, it's not about their careers that they're mentoring me. No. For. No, 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 no. So, exactly. <laughs> I mean, why? Yeah. Um, so, everything that they have given me, it's, um, it's just a gift. Yeah. And then for me, it's like, I don't know, having a library and one day I take something out of one and then one day take something out of the other and that's it. In, um, I, I keep very good notes, yeah. you know, yeah. on what I've learned from, from then. I, uh, some of them I have videos. Some it's just like the notes in my scores. Yeah. But every time I open a score that I've studied with them, I know that I can use this and this and this and that. So, yeah. yes, yeah, I'm, I'm very lucky. Uh, all of I, them have great. I love that answer about the fact that you've got a library of information from, you know, these five names, seven names, if you count Charles and Erica as well. And when needed, you take that book off the shelf and use it. But I yeah. think the, the other thing about it is that sometimes th that book won't come off the shelf for 10, 15, 20 years. And some of the things they're going to tell you when you're young, you don't realise that how important they are until much later. And you think, oh, my God, actually, what I was told that 15 years ago, and now I'm using it, now I'm learning it. You know, you, there are things that they said to you that you haven't used yet. 
you know, that's the point, isn't it? Yes, and some things that I don't understand. Yeah, you know, and this is one of the greatest gifts as conductors that you never stop learning. Yeah. So sometimes I see notes that I was like, oh my God, yes, as you said. Um, someone already told me this, that I am discovering for myself that, yeah. <laughs> discovering, you know, boiled water, but also some things that I just learned, you know, uh, as I told you, I keep like, even if they say the, the most random thing, I put it on my score when they say it, you know, yeah. I'm just like, like uh, actively absorbing everything. And sometimes it's like, oh, now I'm ready to absorb this bit of knowledge that I didn't yeah. know that was going to be. So yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's a treasure. The other way that we learn, of course, and you've been, you've been and still are, in a wonderful situation that most conductors would kill for. You know, you have your relationship at the moment with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. You're also conducting fellow at the Philadelphia Orchestra, having had the same job at the Seattle Symphony Orchestra. Three great orchestras of the US, of the world. You know, what differences, if there are any at all, between the three of you sort of learnt by conducting, but also just by sitting and chatting in the canteen over a cup of coffee with some players, you know, they're, they're also the great resources, aren't they? The players of the orchestra. Are there any differences between those three orchestras or, or, or would you say that they're very similar? No, they're very different in their music making. Mm. Uh, very, very different. I want to say that the, the biggest difference is repertoire approach. Right. Repertoire approach. And uh, with that, uh, you know, the sound profile, it's already completely different. Um, I wouldn't say which one is better or worse. They're just they're just diverse. And yeah. what I've learned from them is that uh, in general they just want conductors who can inspire them. Yes. And they can understand what their sound is mm. from the first downbeat. All of them, yeah. you know. So it's not. So if you understand how they process their sound then you can work with them because yeah. they can know what to do and it's not going to be about you discovering yourself in mm. the in the thing so that's why i, I think i uh, i keep good relationships with we with all of them i mean i still have good uh, great warm relationship with the seattle symphony musicians even if i haven't seen them this season because they're just amazing Mm. And some of them were in the Philadelphia Orchestra, you know, so at the end, it, it's a small world and everybody knows each other and their sound and their sound experiences permeate, you yeah. know, they cross over at some point. Mm. And in Chicago, I mean, Chicago has been a very interesting experience because I have yet to conduct them. I have conducted other ensembles, but I just sit there mm. and experience their music and boy that is some orchestra yeah, uh, yeah. you know they can play whatever the hell they want <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yes you know? I'm sure. yes and the other thing is that a uh, good orchestras have no i mean no insecurities inside yeah. it you know there's there is little animosity towards conductors at those levels mm. uh, just because they're just sure of what they are 
Yeah, yeah, I think that's absolutely fair. I think, you know, the orchestras, the great orchestras that I've conducted, yeah, they know what they are, they know what they're about, and, and they want you to inspire them. Um, you just mentioned the first downbeat, you know, putting the downbeat down and, and assimilating the sound that comes back at you. It's something every time we go and conduct a new orchestra as a guest conductor, we have to do instantly. You know, I've, I, we're friends on Facebook. I know you've just returned from a very long trip in Europe, 30 odd days, including a couple of, you know, lost baggages and all that sort of stuff. And you're now finally back home again. But um, I wonder whether you have any strategies or tactics about how, you know, how to approach a new orchestra. When you walk in on Monday morning, somebody says, please welcome our conductor this week, Lena Gonzalez Granados, and everybody's looking at you. And, and how, you know, how <laughs> exactly uh, your face tells me. Yeah, yeah, I've got that feeling every time I stand in front of an orchestra like that as well. But yeah, how, how have you got any strategies or, or, or any do's and don'ts for any young conductors um, who are listening, of which I know there are many? Well, you know, uh, I, I want to say that the very first thing is to let them play. Mm. Like at the, first, the, the first piece that you put on the table, it's like a, a letter of presentation. Like yeah. that's your curriculum vitae. Yeah. So that you, don't, that you let them know you first. Yes. You know, 90% uh, of the time they will have preconceived notions. Yes. And, from the first downbeat and sometimes you are going to be at lost. Mm. And uh, even with that feeling, you, you know that uh, you should always focus on that at the end of the process, at the last rehearsal or the last concert, that you did your best, even if you were at lost, you mm. know, so. And you were so, just, you were just yourself, you know. That's yeah, the, exactly, yeah, you were yeah, just yourself. Yeah. Sometimes, Yourself is enough, sometimes yes. it's not, and sometimes your enough is not something that they're used to. No. Uh, you know, you just have to accept that. Sometimes, yeah. you know, I just came back from one experience that, uh, you know, I see, I see people how they go with Chicago, with, uh, I don't know, with uh, Philadelphia, and always it's very polite. Mm. Uh, and not only it's polite, it's a, an active conversation, but some orchestras don't like mm. a, a conversation in rehearsal. Meaning like, do you have any questions? Do you, like, they think that that is a part of a weakness and then they take over. They want to really, yes. you know, they really want to take over. And if you, you know, I learned this way, I learned this past uh, tour that, you know, that my I might need to have to develop something more than myself and just like be a little more attuned culturally. Mm, to, yeah. You know, uh, so it's, I, I'm a learning process. I, mm. I, I'm a, yeah, so. <laughs> We're all a learning I, process, I Lena. <laughs> I, I, yes, I haven't figured it out yet. Yeah. Uh, but what I know is that even with a bad experience or a weird experience, I always come back stronger because mm. at the end of the day, I'm the one standing in the podium and the concert has to happen. So I have to make it happen. Yeah. So, but I, I think that's also, I think there's a whole generation of conductors now. I, I may be speaking in general terms here, but I think there's a whole generation of which I am definitely one, even though I'm older, but you know, who 
who want to collaborate, who at the end of playing a piece say, has anybody got any questions? Anybody want to re repeat anything? You know, they don't want to just shut the score and say, right, on we go and ignore the feelings of the players. Exactly. And I think, I think most orchestras uh, are in agreement with this and actually find it a rather refreshing and nice thing to do. I still think there are some orchestras in some cultures who hate, you, yeah, who, who hate it, who think it's a sign of weakness that you haven't got your approach and whatever else. But actually, the way I look at it is, if you want to play another piece again to make you feel happier for tomorrow's rehearsal or for the concert later on, I'd be stupid not to ask you and I'd be stupid not to let you do the thing you want to rehearse. But as you said, some orchestras, you know, will, will until some of those older generation of players retire and younger ones come through, you know, it, it's like anything. The orchestras are also evolving as well as we're evolving. And that's the point, you know. You know, I found it uh, interesting that you mentioned that because uh, with this particular experience that I am telling you, it was the John Walker once. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Well, I'm, I'm surprised about that. But... Yeah, exactly. I was like, yeah. okay, I just feel sad about it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I feel sad for you because things are being done in bigger orchestras that are done differently. You'll yeah. never get, get a chance to stand up for a better job. Yeah, Oops, yeah. I'm you know, mm. you know, it's time to change. Yeah. It's to make these, you know, like her, her, hierarchical, how do you say it? Hierarchical oh. systems yes. have been changing. I mean, on the longest time, you see it in, uh, I don't know, enterprises. You see it in big, big names of, of places, CEOs yes. and everything. And we still want to keep, a, you know, a crumbling system that uh, i mean the pandemic showed it we we need to be we need to either we change it or we cancel concerts at this point i asked lena about unitas a chamber-sized ensemble that concentrates on latin american music and culture that she founded she says as both a protest and as a gift to the city of boston if you want to hear that short discussion i've turned it into a patreon exclusive bonus mini episode for as little as £5 a month, you can get access to this mini-episode, as well as all of the previous 16 mini-episodes. You'll also get a monthly bulletin podcast from me about my career, as well as advanced news about this podcast. You'll also get an interview once a month with a prominent person from the classical music world who has dealings with conductors, as well as articles, essays, and all sorts of other conducting-based content. The details of how to join are in the show notes below, and I'd love to see you subscribe to the Supporters Club of A Mic on the Podium very soon. Now, back to my chat with my guest, Lina Gonzalez-Grenados. As a young conductor who's guesting a lot, as we've talked about, but also somebody who, through Unitas, was learning a lot of new music, how do you learn a score? What's your process? Have you got a process? Do you start from big to small? Uh, do you sit and use your piano skills? And more importantly, for the conducting students and geeks like me, are you a scribbler? Do you write lots of things in your scores? Well, you've told me you write lots of quotes from your mentors, but do you write a lot of musical notes to yourself? Or do you try and keep it as clean as possible? And are you a user of colours? Are you red, blue, black, highlighter oh. pens and all of that? <laughs> How do you do it? Ah, uh, you're showing me a whole pot of pencils. Well, there we are. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's a good, yeah. that's a, a simple answer. No, I, um, it depends on the score. Yes. Definitely. Um, 
the score, some of the scores need more information visually yeah. than others. Um, just because uh, when you are in the podium, you just need, you know, this cue to get you into a moment with them. Mm. Uh, so, for example, with a score that, that has a lot of information already, I just keep a lot of colors that are already like into my system. Yeah. I, um, you know, like I have used the same colors for a while now that I have. Mm. And I am always um, experimenting mm. with, the, with, the, with my tools, with my writing tools. But for example, a, a very, very, um, uh, the things that I write, for example, if it's, if it's um, a very complex rhythm, mm. No, not, not mixed meter, but complex rhythm inside the line that I don't, I can't figure it out. Like uh, as if I sight read it, if there is something that I can't sight read, I write on top of it. Mm. And I, I write what I, you know, like how, how it made sense in my life, like how I, I started, you know, either the composite rhythm or which cue I need to be thinking where to put the downbeat, you know, like arrows and everything. So for me to understand how this is, yeah. so that, that is the kind of information I have in a very complex new music score. Mm. And I don't write, like I don't scribble thoughts on the score per se, but I have a lot of post-its. Yes, yeah. Yeah. So I put a lot of post-its and uh, all of them also depends on the color uh, and it depends on the size as well. Right. So for example, I have the, the little size for just the small thought or if I need a more explanation that is not mine, I use a longer one, you know, uh, I'm very, yes. And uh, in general, I have a lot of colors and I, I, lately I used to um, uh, use highlighters a mm. lot. Um, just to keep uh, layers, the, yes. if there were layers that in, were in common, you know. But um, as then when I got older, I ditched the highlighters because sometimes with the lighting, they don't pop up and yeah. then actually uh, disrupt you from yeah. the from, from actually seeing. And also because I'm getting older, you know. <laughs> so the, the more that I put, then I have to do this but uh, i discovered like a uh, removable highlighters mm. so i don't have to commit to a marking yes and uh, that is the that is the most important that every marking that i do is never absolute okay so, so you can always remove it yeah exactly that i can always like everything that is erasable like i spend all my money into erasable highlighters pens erasable everything yeah. uh, because some of the scores that I have that are quite expensive, I just like made bad decisions on it. Yeah. <laughs> so I yes. to, you know, I, I will have to buy it again. Mm. So th those are the ones. And then, yes, I use, for example, um, if I do mix meter, I use di different, for example, if it's like um, six, eight, five, eight, seven, eight, I use one color and then three, four, you know, if it's in the same, I just use different colors. Okay. Yeah. And and, uh, and it, it, it's I, I suspect you're you're like me in the fact that it by writing the information in whether you you know I use three colors whether you use eight or ten or whatever but by writing it in you you learn the score that way um, yeah. you know I, I remember 
you know, coming to the end of a page and thinking, I know what's written on the next page because I remember writing it. I know it's in that colour and whatever. And it, it it means that in the consulate that you, you know, you've got a friend down there that looking up at you with all of the information that you wrote in. And yeah. it, it actually gets my head up out of the score more. But then some conductors have said to me, if I write a, lo a load of stuff in, I'd just be staring at it and I wouldn't be looking at the score. So we all have our own way. But, you know, it yeah. sounds, yeah. It sounds like we're similar. On it manually, yeah. I wonder. Yeah, yeah, I'm the same. Thing, you know that that's and as you said, like how do you study a score? Uh, I try to go to the piano, and you know, especially classical, like more more canonical ones. I I enjoy it, play it more. But when it's not, if it's new music, uh, the way that I use the piano is very differently. You know, mm. it's, it's, uh, the things that I can't uh, solfege. I'm, yes. I'm very good at, actually at solfege and that is like my biggest pride like real-time solfege with you know very fast things uh, if I can't solfege it I go to a piano yeah. or if I can't hear it I go to a piano and work on it individually and sometimes in the hotel I can't you know no. I just go like you know there so I, I have my keyboard and just like use it just to memorize the pitch and know mm. that those are the pitches that I need Lena, it's that time of the podcast where we must traverse the 10 questions. And as ever, I start with what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? The noise that I hate the most, there are two noises that I absolutely hate. One is like, um, you know, blackboards? Yes. And like a chuck. Mm, yeah. Chuck touches it and it sounds that look i have goosebumps only <laughs> thinking about it yeah. that is one. and the other is when someone is like cutting meat or anything and they touch the plate and it sounds like the squeak yeah. you know that, that they just or they don't know how to cut food it really like messes with me it's the same and i think it has similarities with the shock you mm. know both of them are like almost the same and the noise i love is my dad's or my mom's laugh <laughs> brilliant that's the first time i've ever heard that answer in over a hundred episodes that's wonderful really good answer it makes me so happy to hear my dad's laugh you know mm, brilliant if you had 24 hours free what would you spend it doing i would spend doing eating going to places and restaurants and just eat very weird food that i've never tasted that is like my favorite thing Oh, well, I'm looking forward to the answer to question 10 now. <laughs> I mean, I always look forward to the answer to question 10 anyway, but now I really am looking forward to it. Question four, however, uh, this is a nice one. I always like this one because great names get talked about. Who would be a favourite conductor or conductors of yesteryear? George Petren is mm. one. Uh, I want uh, Raphael Kubelik. Mm. And... Um, what uh, who else there's so many you know bruno walter mm. and Schulte. oh my god oh like i love Schulte. Mm. yes actually four names especially Schulte and pretra george pretra i mean he's he's conducting so characterful i love watching him videos of him conduct and there's i think there's one of him rehearsing as well something i think it might be la Primedia and fond um but yeah, yeah. four four yes. names that don't come out very often at all 
Um, yeah, and, and I had, I, I, there was one that I love, 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 and I cannot remember his name. Maybe you can uh, remind me. It's this guy, Czech, who died very, very early on an airplane. Istak Kerstek? Oh, Kertesh. Kertesh. Oh, my God. I've been yes. trying to find his yes. name because he's the Vorjak. I mean, oh, I they're amazing. Yeah. I mean, there is nothing like Kuelik and his is like, mm. you know, those are, yeah, my favorite. Yeah, the Kurtish recordings of Vorjak are amazing. I only discovered them recently, and yeah, they are absolutely amazing. Yeah. Well, question five. Uh, let's see if uh, your, your answers are as interesting as your question four. Can you name a favorite current conductor or conductors? Conductors, yeah, too many, huh? <laughs> um, I like definitely Yannick. Um, I love... Maestro Muti, just because working with them, uh, I can see where they go and I understand, you know, yeah. the recordings better. I like Semyon Bishkov mm -hmm. a lot, a lot. Um, and I like Mirga. Mirga, yes. The recordings of uh, every recording that I've seen with her is just so illuminating. So mm. yes, those are my my four currents. And I, I what's the name of this guy? Uh, I know him. I know him. I know him. Uh, <laughs> Another guessing game. <laughs> the, 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 the guy from Music Eterna. Uh, oh, um, Theodore Carensis. Yes. Mm. Yes. Be just because he's so different, not necessarily. You know, some of the things uh, I'm just like, wow, someone there to do that, that I always wanted to do, you know? Mm. So uh, whatever, I, if I agree or not with everything, uh, I just like like that he takes those like very extreme chances. Yes. A little calculated sometimes. But... Yeah. but again, a very interesting list of names. Um, I think I've asked all of them um and um to varying degrees of success to come on the podcast but oh, again all very interesting um and yeah brilliant choices wonderful thank you what is the hardest work you have ever conducted there is this piece called a walkabout concerto for orchestra by a, a american composer gabriela lina frank mm. the last movement of it, the mix meter makes any, it makes their right to spring look like a Mozart symphony. <laughs> and, you know, it's like one of these pieces that, uh, you know, it, it, it's a workout, mm. it's an instrumental workout. And it's just, uh, for me, it's like the most satisfying to get into that piece and just, you know, transcend with it. And emotionally, so many, I would say, in, Oh, Mahler, any yeah. Mahler, Mahler to uh, the last movement always mm. get in, in a different piece. And the one that I'm looking forward to conduct that I know it's going to be the hardest work, uh, but it's my favorite piece of all times is also Sprack. Ah. That is a piece that I want to, like every time I'm just like, can someone hire me to conduct also Sprague? Because I'm ready to just tackle that. It's just the most amazing piece. 
Well, I was lucky enough when the CBSA Youth Orchestra performed it, I think off the top of my head it was with Jack Van Steen, that I did get to rehearse Elsa Sprach Zaratustra. Um, and it was one of those you just think, well, I, you know, dear Jack, I love Jack. But yeah, I hope I hope on your travel over to Birmingham you fall over and break your arm and I can conduct the concert. <laughs> he didn't, and I didn't really mean it, but you know what I mean. It was one of those. I uh, I have to do this quite regularly with the CBSA Youth Orchestra and love doing it, where I rehearse the thing through till Thursday, and then the conductor who does a concert does Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And I've learned so much repertoire that way, and I love doing that job. But there have been occasions where I've thought. I really want to do this concert, I, you know, I, um, and that was one of them. Uh, I've yet to conduct it either, and I would love to. Just, I mean, just that opening string chorale after the, you know, the famous very opening, just that alone, you just, oh, this is just divine. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful choice. Thank you. Next one. When travelling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Well, the one that I have never left with uh, without is um, um, it's a batch of Colombian coffee. Ah. I always bring it's a dried coffee, but I always bring my own coffee to to tour because it makes me feel like home uh, all the time, and I don't have to suffer with like bad coffee everywhere. <laughs> mm. You know, so even if I have good coffee, for example, in Italy that they sell good coffee, then it's a gift. Mm. And uh, like any, you know, but I hate having to drink bad coffee just because that's the only thing. And when I have it, I get very grouchy. <laughs> that is like the one. And the last one, um, I I call it like an emotional support pillow. Mm. Uh, so I have a, this little pillow. It's not, it's like a, a travel pillow and kind of, that it, um, it's in form of a Shiva Inu because I have a dog, as you can see, a Shiva Inu. Mm. It reminds me of home. I call him a uh, Softakovic. <laughs> <laughs> so emotional... I, I can't even say that. Softakovic. Yeah, that's very good. <laughs> yeah, like Softakovic and yeah. my coffee are the two things I don't leave. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? I wouldn't change anything. I wouldn't change anything about being a conductor. The only thing that I would change is a you know, um, very selfish musicians that think that conductors are their enemies. Mm. Uh, but that, that doesn't have anything to do about uh, being a conductor because conducting is such a beautiful art mm. uh, that you devote your life and sacrifice so much for. So I would change the musicians around sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> You know, if you don't want to go, if, if you don't want to go play, just retire and do something else. Mm. You know, there's a lot of works that you can go, but you don't have to just bring ugliness into the business. Well, my last bad experience with an orchestra was exactly one of those, and I felt like saying to this particular gentleman, I will narrow it down. That I won't just say person; I will say gentleman. Uh, firstly, that he wasn't a gentleman, and secondly, that if you think you can do any better, please take up conducting and find out, you know, exactly what it's like to be stood there and attacked by somebody for apparently no reason whatsoever. Um, yeah, it, you know, in the end, the job that they're doing, you've just said it, that involves conductors. If you're in a symphony orchestra, you're going to be conducted every week of your life. So, you know, get used to it. If you don't like it, leave. Go and be a chamber musician. Go and be a solo, whatever, you know. Um, I absolutely agree with you. Uh, and as I said earlier, 
I think there's a generation of conductors, you know, the dictator authority, authoritarian conductor doesn't exist really anymore. We want to collaborate. We want to make music with you. Um, you know, d don't be so aggressive. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wonder, it's talking about suggesting to players that they might want to leave and go and do something else. Let's find out what profession other than your own you might like to attempt. Uh, in real life or fantasy, I would have loved, uh, I mean, equally as music, I would have loved to be a doctor. Mm. And I would love, I would have loved to be a psychiatrist so yeah. I can treat those musicians and make them retire. <laughs> but no, I mean, I I've said it before, I know part of our job is to be, is to, is to know about the psychology of orchestras and, and you, know, you almost are a psychiatrist, or either your own head or their heads, you know, the musicians' heads. Um, but yeah. No, but joking, joking aside, I mean, I'm fascinated by psychology, I'm fascinated by psychiatry, and I'm an avid reader on things that, of psychiatry documents and, you know, journals. Yeah. Every month I go, you know, and when I do not, don't understand things uh, in the New England Journal and everything, I call my dad and I was like, dad, what does this mean? I love, love, love learning uh, about medicine. Mm. Yeah. It's a thing well, because sometimes I educate my parents, even they're, they're doctors and they're like, stop. I've <laughs> <laughs> been right. Mm. This is like the crazy stuff. Sometimes they call me like, hey, have you like come up with an article about this and that. And I'm like, I got it for you. It's like the thing that I love. Yeah, you know? yeah. Oh, so the apple doesn't fall that far from the tree then, as the phrase goes, you know, with Sorry. growing up with two doctors that, you know, if you hadn't have taken full fan music that you would have been yeah. very happy following in their footsteps. Totally. Yeah. Totally. I did say earlier on, I was looking forward to question 10. I always do, but you did mention weird and wonderful cuisines. So let's find out. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Well, um, in September, I went to this restaurant called El Cielo, which is heaven in Spanish. Mm. I've heard of it, yeah. El Cielo is the first Michelin-starred restaurant uh, of Colombian cuisine. Mm. And they had, it's called the Bread of Life, uh, which is the most amazing yuca uh, bread I've ever eaten in my life, which is like, it was like a toast that it's in form of a, I mean, I've never eaten the way that I ate that day. I, I want, if I could, I could go every day. I would <laughs> go there. You know, it's like 16 courses of heaven. Uh, so if it, it if it ends, I want to be in heaven already, you know? <laughs> well, I'll make sure when I do the, the, the social media release that I tag in, if they've got a social media account, El Cielo. And, um, and they, they know that, um, that their 16 course meal has been recommended. Uh, it sounds awesome. I mean, that, that, that sounds a great way to go. Show you a picture of it because it's uh, i mean it's it's crazy it's really it's it really is. let me show it um but you're cutting there right uh, i can cut but also uh wh whilst you're trying to find the picture i'm intrigued to know did you do what i would do when you go to these places and have the wine that they suggest that you have with the 16 courses did you do that 
They no, they I, I actually didn't drink a, anything that I ordered, but they give you like different cocktails. Yes. So there was this co this cocktail uh, with vodka and mandarin. Oh. Like like Colombian mandarins that are very very sweet and juicy but small like yeah. yeah and that thing was out of this world I mean <laughs> there was nothing in that meal that was you know they had um how do you call it a uh, crabs crab yeah. buñuelos which is a buñuelo is like a cheese uh, slash um I don't know uh, like a bread. Yeah. No, I mean, and then they had this um, seafood, like molecular uh, seafood uh, thing, so that it looked like foam. And then when you taste it, it just tastes like home. <laughs> no, there was nothing. There was just like one plate that I was like, uh, maybe this is not like anything like I've eaten, but I yeah. dig it still. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I can tell you now that you've made me very hungry. Um, <laughs> Uh, which is always a good it's a, always a good sign and what a good way to spend an hour or so lena i've thoroughly enjoyed chatting to you and i hope in the very near future maybe when on your one of your trips to europe another one of your trips to europe that we get to meet and we can um maybe not share 12 courses but you know maybe three uh, and, a, and a, a cocktail or two i would love that very much thank you so much michael for uh, finding the time to look for me and to get to know me and just just share thoughts about our profession which is it's so commendable that you do thank you so much a mic on the podium was devised and produced by michael seal with music by ben dawson Next time, I chat with a French conductor who shot to fame after winning the Donatella Flick competition in the year 2000. Since then, he's held title positions in Belgium, Germany and the United Kingdom, as well as starting his own period instrument ensemble, Les Siècles, in 2003. But until then, bye-bye.